This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 21st, 2022, and this is episode 286. I'm Scott Lundeboom. I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're going to dive once again into the conservative leadership race, and then a bit of a potpourri episode of just bits and bobs. It's a quiet week. That's okay. Thank you, patrons, for keeping the show going. Join them, patreon.com slash politicost. Get into our Slack channel. Join the conversation. It's a ton of fun, I promise. Let's speak of promises. Let's jump into the latest of the conservative leadership campaign promises that are coming out. Everyone has ideas on how to make Canada great again. Thankfully, they're not using that language. But there's eight of them, it seems like, who have officially entered the race and gotten the bare minimum, I think it's $50,000 deposit they needed to get down. Yeah, so the first deadline for filing with the party had passed this week uh, that he Eight candidates that made it through that threshold are Scott Aitchinson, Leona Lesev, Roman Babber, Patrick Brown, Jean Charest, Mark Dalton, Leslin Lewis, and Pierre Polyev. Eight days from now. real surprises there? No, I think we've talked about them before. There's a few others who are banding about their names, but the real deadline is in eight days. That's when they have to get $300,000 in for registration and compliance fees and a five hundred party member signature endorsement to get on the ballot. We're told Jean Charest, Leslin Lewis, and Pierre Polyev are already on that list. Presumably, I think Patrick Brown should make that based on what we're hearing. I, I would be shocked if he didn't meet those obligations. The signatures isn't that hard, especially if you want to have a serious campaign. The funding can be a little bit trickier with the campaign limits, but even there, it should be doable. So I would expect we're having at least four-person race. Maybe we'll get more. Or let's get into the policies then. Let's start with Pierre Polyev. His big thing this week was housing. Scott, how is he going to fix the crisis? Yeah, so people may remember last week we talked about the video he put out that uh, went fairly viral and got quite a bit of uptake. This week he put out the backgrounder on what's going to be involved in actually following through on that. So. So there's five main ideas in there. First off will be uh, trade penalties for governments of major municipalities that don't succeed in meeting housing targets that the federal government would set. This would be for municipalities of 500,000 or more, which more or less just limits it to the big cities. In BC, that would just be Vancouver and Surrey. Uh little unfortunate because Victoria to pro- Victoria and all the little municipalities there and a bunch of the, the other municipalities here in Metro Vancouver could probably use those same nudges. So with this, they'd basically be taking the community building fund and changing the rules around distributions for that, for cities that don't increase completion of dwellings by 15% or more. Yeah, it's a... Interesting way. It's it's a stick, right? The government at the federal level 
basically has cash and sticks and this stick is withholding funds. It gets a little bit complicated in there. It's basically like, all right, you're building at this rate. We want you to increase that by at least 15% or we're going to cut your funding by whatever amount below 15% you hit. So if you're 10% short of the target, you get 10% of your funds withheld. It's a pretty big stick. What gets weird is he's got a second penalty in here also for these major quote unquote severely unaffordable cities, these cities over 500,000 people, where in cases of what he calls egregious nimbyism and gatekeeping, local residents and quote entrepreneurs will be empowered to file complaints about it with the federal government's infrastructure department. If the complaints are well founded, the federal government can also withhold infrastructure dollars in addition to gas tax funds. So that sounds like a chaotic hell kangaroo court. Yeah, particularly because like the the most egregious nimbyism is in your your West Vancouver's and the like, rather than the major cities. Although you don't have to stretch too far to to find them here in Vancouver, and I imagine Toronto would be the same. But he's talking about like local residents and entrepreneurs complaining. It's it'll be developers, right? This isn't going to be like Joe down the street is mad about egregious. No, this is going to be your major development corporation. And maybe the, I could see EMB groups getting involved in this. Like in California, there's, what is it, EMB law that sues under municipalities there under their various state laws regarding housing requirements and the like. So you, you could potentially see something similar happening here. It's weird because I don't see how this, like in the long run, this might help. But in the short run, this is another round of like complaints and public hearings and reviews and then funding gets withheld and then the city probably sues for judicial review and meanwhile no houses get built for that like it's an interesting stick and i'll give them points for creativity on it but i'm not sure this one i think the bigger problem with this whole first point is the five hundred thousand person threshold like that works in ontario where you have municipal amalgamation but here in bc like you said there's two towns that it applies to but the entire capital region isn't helped by this if you assume this will help Kelowna and Kamloops which are facing housing issues aren't helped why draw at a half a million unless it's just because you like beating on big cities and also don't want to piss off suburban voters so the steel man I've seen of this on social media today was that this could be considered like anti-sprawl things that focuses development in the bigger cities has that effect. And also the, the bigger cities tend to have the, the most egregious housing problems. I, I think still they think have the most like acute housing not, problems. Yeah. Like I can see the logic of of why big cities in particular need uh, a stick uh with them, but there's no reason to cap it at that level. You could have just not had that threshold in there and it wouldn't really have changed anything. Next up is a grant of ten thousand dollars per home two municipalities on all growth and home building paid out only after houses are built and occupied. The idea here being to create a building bonus to encourage municipalities to build above and beyond the average amount they're already building. So this will apply, as far as I can tell, to every municipality in the country. But for municipalities over 500,000 people, they need to build beyond 15% of their previous goals. So your city of 499,999,000 people that built uh, 1,000 homes last year now needs to 
build a thousand and one to get some extra money. Vancouver, if it built a thousand homes next last year, now needs to build eleven hundred and fifty one. The money for this, though, I find this fascinating because this is buried in the backgrounder, is going to be coming from the current budget's promised spending on housing, $10 billion, except he's just going to cut that in half and only use $5 billion of it for this building bonus. Yeah, so the Liberal budget had a $4 billion housing accelerator fund, which in theory was going to do most of what this was doing as well, of incentivizing municipalities to enable more housing. Now, that one was a little fuzzier in what the requirements are, what it could be used for. And reading through the budget, it seems like a a money upfront and hope that turns into actual housing units. Whereas this is more of a pay for performance and only sends out money on results, which I think you did argue kind of dollar for dollar is probably a better way to go about it. Why cut that at first? Assuming this is replacing the housing accelerator fund that, yeah, leaves $1 billion cut from something else in the housing budget, but it's not clear what. I think what this really, each method has different incentives, right? And will push for different things. In the backgrounder here, Polyev's team says municipalities can do whatever they want to increase housing, but they emphasize that allowing the private sector entrepreneurs to find the simplest and most economical way to add or better share living spaces would increase the number of dwellings and give municipal government a larger building bonus. This is a carrot to incentivize further private development, which it's a conservative plan. That's what I would expect. So I think the difference with the liberal approach would be to try to hit a lot of different things. Like you said, the housing accelerator, when I've looked at it, I I don't know what it is. I couldn't really describe it. It basically says we're going to give a bunch of money to cities to somehow make things better. (laughs) That sounds great, but I wish I had more details. At least we have some details here. It it feels, the the liberal one feels a little like the, uh, their promise to make telecoms more affordable of, you know, we're we're going to try and get them to work with us on this and Maybe we'll throw in some money to sweeten the deal, but it just it doesn't really feel like the the heft is there to actually make it work. But for some context, Vancouver, their standard housing target is seven thousand two hundred homes a year. Under this plan, it would require at least fifteen percent to be paid out. So, at ten thousand dollars a home, that's ten point eight million dollars extra Vancouver would be receiving every year if it hit its target on this which is something that, like, the city budget's also over a billion dollars so it's not that much in the grand scheme of things Like there are individual projects that deliver more to the city and CACs than than that granted that the bigger ones but it, it just doesn't really seem to be enough to meaningfully move the the number, but then again, the the liberals claim they're going to have a hundred thousand new homes out of that. And that's forty k home, and even that seems probably a little light to be really getting municipalities to move. Particularly because, as I just alluded to, there is actually just a big incentive to 
build already financially. On the other element of this, right, that I want to keep coming back to is this cuts the housing budget in half. And as far as I can tell, takes all of the programs that the Liberals have promised and just puts half of that money into this scheme. You mentioned the housing accelerator, and that's the big chunk of it. But there's a lot of other funds going out in this budget. There's 2.9 through uh, National Housing Co-Investment Fund, 2.9 billion to improve and repair units. There's a bunch going to Indigenous housing, as far as I remember. Like you're immediately cutting off all of those other projects. And what's always weird about leadership campaigns is Pierre Polyev won't be prime minister, even in the best case scenario for him, for at least a year to 18 months. Like, presumably, this NDP liberal deal isn't going to collapse on this budget or even maybe next year's. And that puts you at 2024, possibly even it holds out till 2025. We're in a different scenario then, especially if you have a different council in Vancouver and especially if you have the provincial government of BC starting to wield its own sticks against the city. That's not to say Pierre Polyev shouldn't be putting out housing policy, but it's just weird to talk about. It makes more sense than an NDP leadership candidate putting out any policy because in theory, he's actually going to be in a position to implement this stuff if, if he wins and then wins the subsequent general. But that's always how it goes. But you run on policy in part because People want to know what you'll do if you actually get elected, and it's good to have that out front. Polyev claims this uh, building bonus will create 500,000 housing units beyond what is currently being built, which sounds like a good number because that's $5 billion divided by 10,000. Uh, so he assumes every dollar of this program will actually roll out, which is a good, uh, a good goal for a government program. He's got three more promises that get less and less detailed. Next up, he will require municipalities to seek federal funds. Next up, he says municipalities seeking federal funds for transit pro projects will have to pre-approve building permits for high-density housing on all available lands around the stations, which is something I think is becoming a pretty core consensus across the political spectrum. If you're going to put a SkyTrain station in, you better plan to build some towers around it and use that space. Yeah, particularly when the federal government and the provincial government are usually kicking in sizable chunks of the funding for those projects. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's it, This is pretty much word for word what David Eby said about what he wants to see happen in BC with the BC government's funding of, of transit projects. It's, it's just good that this, yeah, has that cross-ideological spectrum agreement and one of these days is probably actually going to become policy considering how much people are talking about that as the way to go from all the parties next he will sell off yeah it says sell twice on his website and just once in his pr press release he will sell off 15 percent of the federal government's thirty-seven thousand buildings with covenants requiring them to become affordable housing i like the second half of this i'm always a bit sketched out about just like blanket promises to cut or to sell off public assets like that. Like the federal government could just churn them to affordable housing. They don't need to necessarily sell them off. CMHC used to build affordable housing. Yeah, no disagreement there. But it's interesting because it does use 
an asset the federal government has. And if he coupled this somewhere else in a platform with like public sector workers should get to work from home if they choose. So I'm not thinking of any specific extended family members who might work in the public sector and are really adamant that they should be able to work from home full time. I support that. <laughs> be a bit more flexible public sector. And finally, the most vague of all, because he will release his monetary policy later, is that the federal government should be prevented from creating cash to fund government deficits to end the inflationary bubbles that the central bank helped to create in the housing market. That's not really how this works. <laughs> the, the, the government sells bonds on the market. It's pension funds and investors buying those up mostly. And yeah, the various central banks have had policies to then buy those on the secondary market to to play around with interest rates. But this is not how it works. And plus, it's not like we we separate out central banks for a reason because you don't want politicians mucking around with monetary policies for quick political wins. Pierre Polyev is like the anti-modern monetary theory guy. Yeah, that, that is actually noteworthy here because most of the time, the example of why you don't want politicians mucking around with monetary policy and, and why it should be left to the experts at the central banks is because they <clears throat> will have a tendency to drop interest rates before elections or whenever they're in political trouble because that'll boost the economy, it'll run hot. And that generally is good for political fortunes. The problem with that is it eventually leads to inflation. So having a candidate actually come out and be more tight-fisted with monetary policy is a bit interesting. It's definitely not how it normally goes. But I guess we'll just have but to wait again, for his whole monetary policy to figure out exactly. Yeah, Maybe it'll be gold standard. No, wait, it'll be Bitcoin. <laughs> But we'll also have to see, like, it's easy to say when you're in opposition too, it, what, what the temptation is on a second term Pierre Polyevre government, that he may not be resistant to temptation or to run the, the money printer hot in that case, which is probably why it's a good idea not to have set the precedent already. Yeah, there's his housing policy. It's better than last week where we didn't have anything. He was just yelling about stuff. I, it's tough to say if it lives up to what the liberals just put in their budget, which wasn't great. It's like a different technique to try to do the different, the same thing. A lot of the, the liberals also said they're going to tie federal funds to improving density. It's fine. It could be worse. Uh, yeah, all, all else being equal, I do prefer the pay for actually having the unit built to. Yeah, we'll give municipalities a bunch of money and hope this turns into housing. But yeah, it's I still think the housing policy we talked about last week from uh, Scott Aitchison is the better of the two. But uh, still a decent sign the the general discourse is moving in the right direction on this because these are not policies that you would have seen well, any leadership candidate be talking about, say, five years ago. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the politician to come forward and promise like a next generation level of investment like like we said 10 billion dollars from the federal government last or on the budget was an order of magnitude too small spend so a lot wanna, yeah <laughs> and build 
Let's move over to Jean Charest, who has probably a more controversial platform on, that he has put out on revitalizing Canada's healthcare. And as a bonus, this would end lockdowns. It's an amazing mix of things because he basically says, let's do more private healthcare, and that will mean we won't have to lock down in the future for COVID or other, I don't know, public health emergencies. What I think he's getting at there is basically the idea is, okay, we're currently running our system pretty much at capacity, even when there isn't a pandemic. You, you put in these new delivery mechanisms, you, you take some pressure off there. He's committing to keeping the Canada health transfer increases the same. And so there's no going to be no federal cuts from this, but basically you, you add additional capacity in the system elsewhere. You have more slack in it to, to take up when there is a bad uh, pandemic or even just probably bad flu season going around, because that can often overstress healthcare systems. And that would, in theory, allow you to avoid having to slam on the brakes quite as quickly during a, a pandemic, because there is more reserve capacity in the system. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not a two-tiered system. It's not a, you can, actually, it's not clear because he's basically saying let's reform and have a new national health care act that would allow the provinces to quote determine their own healthcare delivery models in line with national principles which he describes as universality and portability if i was to guess i think what he's getting at is probably something like i think how the australians run their system where there is a universal system that everyone has access to Provides decent quality, good quality healthcare, but there's also private options one can avail themselves of, and I think that is likely what they're going to get getting at here. Or you're thinking more like the allowing the Saskatchewan model that's been a source of contention with the federal government. I would drop the challenges to that, and the, the Saskatchewan model is basically, I know most for the MIR, not MIR, MRI. Most for the MRI scans were if you get a private scan you also as part of the deal have to pay for uh, a second scan for someone on the just general waiting list which honestly said seems like a pretty good system it cuts down wait times it pays for the additional uh scans for someone who isn't paying out of pocket as well it just moves people through the system quicker at no cost to the government like it seems like a, a fine model to to look at this is an interesting pitch from a more for me politically, because I know there have been many fights over healthcare, and here he's basically wanting to start a fight. And I suspect it comes from his own background as Premier of Quebec, where they have experimented and played around a little bit more, sometimes to Ottawa's anger and frustration. He could get some support in the prairies. Part of what he's hoping to get the provinces to buy in on such a change would be that after everyone signs his new National Health Care Act, you get an increased health transfer, so you get more money. He'd also have a $10 billion health care infrastructure fund for putting into health care infrastructure and long-term care homes. And of course, he would launch a investigation of the pandemic response and review Health Canada's regulatory process to ensure we're ready for the future, both in terms of PPE and coping with another pandemic should and when one ever come, which is something I think we've both said everyone should do. 
Yeah, the, the most interesting thing here is definitely the politics of it, because it's one thing to talk about it theoretically, but when it gets to an election campaign, it is a nuanced and difficult position to defend, particularly because we have a very bad tendency in this country to pretend that there are exactly two models of healthcare delivery, and they both happen to be in North America, us in the US, and ignore a whole bunch of alternative delivery models uh, in Europe and, and elsewhere that tend to actually score higher on cross-country comparisons than either us or the US, but just the culture and the politics around discussing healthcare is incredibly narrow and uh, myopic in terms of what actually gets discussed and seriously looked at, which makes it a very challenging thing to, to take on as a opposition candidate looking to, to win government. Indeed. I, I would say he set himself up for general election troubles if I thought he had a chance at all of winning this. Oh, speaking of people who don't really have a chance of winning this, let's talk about Scott, the other Scott, Aitchinson. He's got yeah, your favorite uh, policy out. <laughs> yeah, between the Yimby stuff last week and the video he put out this week going after supply management, he's it feels like he's micro-targeting me. Hashtag on... Scott's for Scott. <laughs> yeah, there isn't a huge amount to say here. He would end the supply management system. So this is the system that... Right now for dairy, eggs, I think one or two others. Dairy and eggs are the main ones. Basically, in order to produce and sell them, you have to get a permission slip from the government that is worth quite a lot of money. Sometimes it can run into the millions of dollars just for the right to milk a farm's worth of cows. On that, this has the effect of depressing supply of staple food products and in turn driving up the prices it also makes it very hard for us to trade our agricultural products overseas and get good deals for us to export them with this it's been a constant source of tension whenever we try and sign trade deals with other countries so his pitch is to eliminate the the system pay out compensation to the farmers for the, the quotas they hold today on that and then in addition to that compensation because we would no longer be trying to just sell to the 38 million canadians and instead would be looking at an export market drastically increase our exports of dairy products around the world he cites in the the video that new zealand a, a country of five million exact number but basically it sports something like an order of magnitude more yeah yeah here 17 billion dollars worth of the supply managed products compared to 378 million that Canada does. So literally an order two orders of magnitude difference despite the country being a fraction of the size of Canada. So that's what he's getting at with this and makes a huge amount of sense because the fact that these staple foods are there's an undersupply of them raise prices and to the point where according to the a study he cites here costs an average family of costs an average family four hundred and forty dollars four hundred and forty four dollars a year on their grocery bill or five hundred and eighty five for a family with children. So there are five 
supply man i have the wikipedia article open there are five supply management organizations in canada the egg farmers of canada the turkey farmers of canada the chicken farmers of canada the canadian hatching egg producers and the ottawa-based canadian dairy commission which is actually a crown corporation so eggs turkey chicken hatching eggs <laughs> ottawa dairy like it's not the entire country i believe it's mostly western canada the steelman argument of supply management is without this you end up getting all the downsides of market economics on this industry, right? You get boom-bust cycles, which harms the farmers who are working in that uh, sector. You end up having challenges where during busts, farmers will have to slaughter a lot of their livestock, whether that's cattle or chickens, etc. And it's wasteful. Rather than trying to be an undersupply is trying to be an exactly correct targeted supply of the product. Now, part of the challenge has been because you have a finite number of supply management tickets, it becomes a scarce resource and it therefore rises in cost over time because supply management itself has become a market and those quotas are now worth quite a lot of money. My dad actually had an egg laying quota for a while and it eventually just became more profitable for him to sell that than to invest in the cost to upgrade the chicken facilities we had so it's a complex system moving off of it is controversial and challenging particularly for conservatives where a lot of their base is in rural western canada where people have done very well by this so well, it's also not just Western Canada; pretty large uh, Quebec, dairy right. farms in Quebec as well. It's part of what shifted the 2017 leadership race to Andrew Shear. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's a it's the policy wants kind of position within the, the Conservative Party. It, it's not necessarily one that's been seen as a political winner, even though there's only eleven thousand dairy farms in the country. Like it's not actually that big a portion uh, proportion of the population to the point where it actually becomes electorally significant outside of small party leadership. And ideally, it should have kept milk prices constant, but they have risen with the latest inflationary pressures. And I don't know the full economics behind that. But yeah, so theoretically, the, yeah. over the long term, supply management has higher prices for Canadians, but they are more stable. But here we are. Yeah, uh, According to the Scots website, the Canadian Dairy Commission raised their target price by 8.4% for this year, which is a lot. And, and also, let's be serious here. If anyone that had, didn't have this pre-written into law had tried to organize such a system, like they would be shut down for price fixing. This takes a special carve out of the law because it is otherwise illegal to do that to do what is at this a, a core part of our farm policy for some reason. He's not going to win, so we're still going to have supply management unless probably Pierre Polyev adopts it. But I well, who know? We we actually don't know what Patrick Brown's promising everyone. Like that that could be. But he's probably not going to win. <laughs> I I would not be so sure about Patrick Brown. I I think he has a a better chance than most people are giving him credit for to to run up the new memberships and be a serious player on this. 
let's talk about him. CTV News has an article today <clears throat> that's not about his past sexual misconduct allegations or their partial apology for one fact they got wrong in those. It's about how he's going around an obscene number of events in the past few weeks. Yeah, according to CTV, he's attended about 200 events over the past three weeks, which works out to about an average of nine and a half per day, taking zero days off in that, which is, that, that's an impressive amount of hustle. Yeah, I, I don't envy that. What's interesting as well is unlike the large rallies that Pierre Polyev has been reported at attending, 1,000 people here and there, largely white and male, Patrick Browns are described as quite diverse. A lot of them are smaller events, just a dozen or 20 people, but a lot of immigrant and racialized Canadians, according to the CTV article. And he's also making a lot of promises in those meetings that don't appear anywhere else on his websites, specific promises to minority communities to make apologies, to put visa offices in Kathmandu, just like effectively niche promises, micro-targeting his promises to audiences that he wants to bring on board. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with mm -hmm. directly engaging communities and listening to their needs and promising to deliver on what they want. It does get a little iffy, to say the least, when you're making those promises, but they're not showing up on your general communications documents, your website where you detail your platform promises and the like, and it's legendary, but people should be transparent about what they're running on, particularly because this stuff is clearly getting reported out, but we don't get the full picture. So it's not even like you can necessarily keep this stuff quiet either. So it just makes not a huge amount of sense as a strategy or just as a, a general matter of norms that should be followed. Even within those communities, it creates a credibility issue like how do you hold him accountable and ensure he follows through on these promises that he said at a meeting once if he doesn't really give a full record that for example he will end the harris designation of the tamil tigers yeah that's a significant departure from past conservative party positions yeah i won't pretend to know enough to speak strongly on this in any way i but it is an interesting and notable promise from Brown targeting the Tamil community specifically. So it's an interesting strategy is mostly what's worth noting here. What CTV lacks in this story, though, is anyone from the Nepalese, the Tamil, the Muslim communities that he's speaking to saying, oh, yeah, we're all on board with Brown. It's basically well, I, Brown I and his spokesperson. Yeah, I, I think we'll have to wait till the membership numbers come out to really see if he's being successful here. Mm -hmm. uh, the the other thing of note in the CTV article is the, there's definitely a recognition by the Brown campaign and a very deliberate attempt to address kind of the conservative party's failings with engaging with a lot of ethnic communities across Canada, and particularly the working to undo the damage that was done from the later Harper years particularly with the barbaric cultural practices hotline on that. And yeah, it's good that there's at least one conservative candidate that's out there that doesn't just talk about it in the abstract, but actually seems to be working on doing the hard work to, to, to reconcile those issues and 
resolve the damage that was done. Yeah, and they even call out the Polyev campaign for working with Jenny Braun, who was the architect of many of those policies that brought... Not just working with, she's the campaign manager on his campaign. So, finally, let's touch on Leslie Lewis's campaign. It's not gotten the press or attention that she really got in the last round. Although, even last time, she was a bit of a sleeper candidate until the end. Yeah. There hasn't been quite as many glowing stories about this come-from-nowhere candidate like last time, but at the same time, she it's not like she was getting nearly the coverage that O'Toole and McKay were getting during that. For sure. I think I think she even got less coverage than was Derek Sloan, who was that campaign's guy saying crazy things. She gets to be that player this time. Uh, Press Progress has watched one of her campaign rallies and dug through her statement titled The WHO Pandemic Treaty and Our Healthcare Sovereignty, which picks out a World Health Organization accord that is being drafted and says, we would surrender our national health sovereignty to the WHO. And as the WHO is changing to become more directed by groups like the Gates Foundation, which is just like a mishmash of anti-globalist conspiracies and paranoia and anti-UN stuff that I'm not surprised she's fallen in with. Yeah, I, the, the interesting thing, though, is I'm looking at the actual archives that they linked to on this, and what's the language? Um, it's not controversial to say that private donors come with private interests, and we must be vigilant in protecting our healthcare system from potential private interests. If it wasn't for all the other stuff layered on top of it, that would sound more at home with the NDP or the Greens than with... Uh, a conservative party. Yeah, she better not find out about Jean Charest's plan for the healthcare system. (laughs) This is the person who write that Trudeau is plotting a socialist coup over his own government. So I'm, yeah, surprised she ever got taken seriously. But we could probably go and dig up stuff from Roman Babber that's right up there as well. But I think we'll leave it there for the conservative leadership race for now. Let's jump over to quick takes and our roundup. There's a bunch of Canadians, including our own premier, John Horgan, who can no longer vacation in Russia, unfortunately. They have been banned. I am sure John Horgan is broken up about not being able to vacation in Siberia. Or St. Petersburg. I'm sure there are actually very nice parts of Russia to visit. And Moscow would be cool to visit one day if it were not for the administration and repression of human rights and everything else going on yeah I could if say that about wasn't much trying to speed what speed run the ussr 2.0 it would be uh, yeah probably a better place to visit on this list of those banned are a number of military officers senior bureaucrats as well as a strange number of journalists and columnists like terry glavin john iveson mark mckinnon from the globe and mail sabrina maddow david walmsley <laughs> Tasha Carradine and Michael Harris, who now, in addition to being worried about Harper always lurking, has to worry about Putin lurking too. Other premiers joining Horgan on the ban list are Ford, Scott Moe, Jason Kenney, and I believe they spelt Kenny's name wrong on their press release from Russia, <laughs> and 
Heather Stephenson from Manitoba. Francois Legault and the Atlantic premiers, as well as those from northern Canada, seem to have evaded the attention of Russia. So I guess they're still welcome. They really need to step up their game then. John Tory, mayor of Toronto, and Jim Watson, mayor of Ottawa, I think are the only mayors to make it on here. Bob Ray, ambassador to the UN, and I don't know, just very mad at Russia guy on Twitter, which (laughs) is a lot of people, but it's weird when it's a senior bureaucrat from the UN yelling about it. Anyway, like you you said, I don't think any of these people were planning to go or were going to be allowed to go anytime soon. Yeah, several of them, I think, have already said various things about taking this as a badge of honor more than anything else. And yeah, it seems to be the, the right spirit to take this in. From the results of the current war to the unfortunate end of the last one, there's a story in the Globe and Mail this week by Robert Fife about how Canadian Veterans Group, the Veterans Transition Network, that was working on getting the Afghans who aided uh, our forces and other allies out of the country after it fell to the Taliban, has announced this week that they are no longer going to be working on that as they have run into continuous roadblocks from the federal government and are unable to actually see this through properly due to challenges with Immigration, Refugee, and Citizenship Canada. This is a bad story and just like another I guess like we've talked of, about this story three times already, but it, like every time it gets worse. You have one job and you're just really bad at it and every step of the way you just make it more difficult. Like this is bad. We should obviously be getting people out of Afghanistan in the same way we need to be supporting people getting out of Ukraine. Which, incidentally, there was a story earlier this week. I think it might have been in the line. I, I can't recall where it is, unfortunately. But basically how we weren't exactly, even though we quote-unquote streamlined the process for Ukrainians, it wasn't exactly easy for Ukrainians seeking refuge in Canada to go through the process either in terms of getting appointments at embassies, doing the, the security screening and the biometric processing on that and that's a group we're actually moving or supposedly moving quickly to facilitate aiding them here so it's just indicative of a larger problem that this government is and not just the government in the colloquial the party running the show and forming the cabinet but the government overall in terms of Ability to respond quickly and adjust things in an emergency and on the fly. And there's no reason we couldn't have gotten the people out of Afghanistan quicker than we did and facilitate, if screening happens, happening in a safe third country rather than hoping they're able to, to find a way out of Afghanistan now and maybe make their way to a canadian embassy somewhere it's bad yeah we should we should not be this terrible at supporting the people that have risked a lot to help us and to to help make their own country a, a, a better place no it's just depressing and i look forward to the inquiry into our entire role in afghanistan including the evacuation 
check out the latest season of Canada Land Commons on the Afghan war and how that went. But another inquiry we're going to be watching is the Emergencies Act one that we've talked about recently. CBC has a story about the inquiry into Emergencies Act set to start soon, which is mostly pointing out that the act has to that the act requires an inquiry to be called by April 25th since it was enacted during the occupation of Ottawa by the truckers convoy and that hasn't been declared yet so presumably the government is going to do its thing in the next 4 days we'll see this is this government hasn't always been super fastidious about those sorts of deadlines so i hope they do we'll see it's also the requirement is 60 days. Man, does it not feel like it has only been 60 days since Ottawa was the thing we were all talking about? So yeah, we'll be watching closely. There is also a parliamentary committee reviewing this as well. The committee is potentially going to... I don't know. We'll have to see if the committee is going to end up being the, the more substantive part of the inquiry. And it's really going to depend on what the terms of reference that the government actually puts out are going to be. That must be what they're we, hung up on. And so That's what we talked We talked about this when the Emergencies Act was declared and actually read through the, the legislation. And there is not actually a huge amount of guidance in there in terms of what's actually needed for the inquiry. The, the government has quite a bit of leeway in what they can do on that. and. I hope it is broad ranging and and looked at a lot of stuff related to it because this was a very significant move and it's something we should be very worried about the precedent that it set. Yes, but it was not dictatorial think- as friend of the podcast Stuart Press points out in his latest CBC editorial to which he is yeah. getting all the hate. <laughs> the thing that worries me is this government has not exactly been uh thrilled about putting itself under any sort of observation where it doesn't control everything and, and can't set the agenda on it. I mean, no government likes to do it, but this one in particular feels less willing to, to go along with those parts than most. Another thing this government should really get on with is fixing our national residence for our head of not our head of state, our head of government, head of government, Justin Trudeau. 24 Sussex Drive is a shithole and unfit for purpose. That's according to a National Capital Commission report attained through access to information because that's how we find anything out in this country by Toronto Star and CBC News. S- speaking of, did you? this is an aside, but did you see that Michael Geist had to get consultation submissions on the online hate bill through access to information. I did see that mention. I didn't read through the story, but basically the government was doing consultations on online harms last year. A bunch of organizations made submissions as they usually had to. And rather than publishing those on a committee website or on the consultation website is usually the way that happens. They didn't. And so he had to request them be published, which is just absurd. Anyway, 24 Sussex, it's bad. It's in a bad it was state. Bad, yeah. it, it's been bad as long as I can remember. It was terrible when Paul Martin was in there. Stephen Harper didn't exactly have a comfortable time living there either. Problem is nobody actually wants to spend any money on it and it had gone to such a point that it was basically not fit for habitation by 2015 when Trudeau became 
uh, prime minister, and he never even moved in and instead is in one of the cottages on the Rideau Hall grounds. It, it, it's a mess. It we, requires $36.6 million in repairs. You could build a lot of homes for that. Yeah, like at this point, it is cheaper to actually knock it down and build something new, which is what the National Capital Commission recommends. This has only been the Prime Minister's residence since, I don't know, sometime in the post-war years. I can't recall exactly when, but it's not, it is not anywhere near as significant as the White House or 10 Downing Street. The, the building could be knocked down and replaced with something that actually is suitable for a major world leader. They recommend in here that the if they do build a new 24 Sussex, that it would have a be 15,000 square feet and would include a, I don't know why this exact number, 5,352. It's those last two square feet that I find particularly interesting. Hosting area for accommodating up to 125 people so they could host world leaders and other events there. And the residential portion of the building would be 4,600 and another random number, 89 square feet on that. Sounds like someone's actually started drafting these up in the background, which is why they have those. Or they've done this in metric and converted would be my... It's the the specific numbers are weird to me. But yeah, it, it should be upgraded. There's no reason we, we can't actually furnish the head of government with a proper residence. Scott, we can't could- build enough houses for the residents of this country. How are we going to build enough for the heads of this country? I'm trying to tie this whole episode together. One other thing we need more of is nurses, and the BC government has a plan. We're going to throw $12 million at fast-tracking internationally trained nurses through our accreditation process to try to deal with the shortage. This gets technical, and I don't think either of us know a ton about it, but there has long been complaints about accreditation processes for many different skilled trades. It's the old stereotype of the cab driver who has a PhD in engineering from India or another country, but can't do, can't be a doctor here, can't be an engineer here. And so they end up driving cabs or something else different and finding ways to make that training overseas eligible for accreditation here is something we need to get better at and this is good money to see yeah it's absolutely something we should do it's been a long time problem and should not have taken till now to fits the vancouver sun story highlights the story of a canadian who studied nursing in finland and returned here and i don't know the ins and outs of the finnish medical education notably dodgy medical system finland yeah there is no reason to think that someone trained in nursing in a country that is well known for its educational attainment and quality of public services would not be capable of performing the roles of a nurse here like it just it makes no sense it's yeah there, there should be a lot of it should be a lot easier to take international credentials and, and transfer them across borders particularly as the world is 
more globalized than it was decades ago. Yeah, this is going to focus on trying to shave months off a process that can often take 18 months to two years. And it's also going to create $9 million worth of bursaries of up to $16,000 each to help international nurses navigate the regulatory system. Part of the criticism in here is that this only applies to nurses. And there are many other professionals, especially doctors, we need to try to navigate this. But I guess those negotiations are ongoing. Uh, the BC Nurses Union is welcoming these changes. So pretty widespread support for this. It's just a matter of making sure all of the I's and are dotted and T's are crossed. And here we go. I think this follows Ontario doing something similar, but you know, glad to see it. And similarly, I'm glad to see a litigation directive change by the Attorney General's office in BC. This is basically the orders the minister gives to the lawyers of government on how to pursue certain cases. And specifically here, David Eby is saying on cases that involve Indigenous rights, they're going to focus more on promoting resolution, innovation, and negotiated settlements, ideally to reduce the potential for litigation, though they do respect that Indigenous peoples have the right to choose the preferred forum, which could include the courts, should they want to fight it out in court. But the idea being not every land claim charter debate or rights and title debate needs to go to the Supreme Court of Canada via all the other courts in between to settle. The courts have set a number of precedents. We just need to follow them and also work with the nations in these conflicts to come to good agreements. And this is being pretty widely hailed. Even Adam Olson, Green MLA, is heralding this as a good thing, and he's just waiting for the rubber to hit the road. Yeah, it seems like a reasonable change. I, I don't know the ins and outs of the, the legal process. We'd have to really comment more, but... Yeah, seems seems a positive development. Yeah, it's something that I think Jody Wilson-Raybould really pushed for federally when she was Attorney General. There's a lot I might critique about how she navigated legislation as Attorney General, but I think these kind of changes are the real. There's a background changes that of government that don't get appreciated, but can actually make a big difference in people's lives in the long run because not fighting things in court can mean the difference, especially for a First Nation that doesn't have tons and tons of money backing it to realize their rights. And so, I'm, I'm optimistic about this. Even Adam Olson in his thread points out some cases that are ongoing that, hey, you could settle these right now and that would probably look like a good show of faith. But reconciliation is an ongoing process. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.